Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on New Books and Literature, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Martine Prechtel, whose work ranges from painting and drawing to overlooked histories and living languages, to farming and blacksmithing and cooking, to the six books he's written, which cover topics so vast, in genres so varied, that all the short descriptions I've tried to give of them feel like an injustice. Let me just say that the vision in his books reaches out toward the very nature of the cosmos, while it also attends to nature's smallest spirits, to what's holy and alive in the stones and the seeds. And running throughout this work is Prechtel's powerful and lush talent for storytelling. In The Disobedience of the Daughter of the Sun, Prechtel introduces the unique stories he heard when he lived among the Tutuhil Mayan people in the village of Santiago Atitilan in the Guatemalan highlands. He writes that these stories are alive, and being alive, they are not just told at any time, but only in the dark. Though everyone by a certain age knows a version of these living stories, only certain people, those accepted storytellers, can tell them and will admit to knowledge of them. For it is in the telling only that these stories live, and being ancient, big, and hungry, they must be brought to life as well. And that, perhaps, is the best way I can introduce Martin Prechtel. He brings to life stories that live, and through them he reveals the rich, beautiful, abundant possibilities of what it might mean for us to live the stories of our lives. Well, would you would you mind starting us off by telling us a little bit about your vision of story storytelling? There's this really beautiful opening in the disobedience of the daughter of the sun about the nature of uh-huh. stories and the way they work. Right. Man, <laughs> I'm glad you read that. Well, first of all, you know, I was raised in New Mexico. All right, and New Mexico that I was raised in was not a place where people read books. If you want to go where, please, where it rains a lot, that's where people read books because they stay inside and they read. <laughs> where New Mexico, it, we love it when it rains, let me tell you, but we go outside and sit in it, you know. And um, people were extremely uh, oral. I mean, I, w- I was raised with a bunch of Pueblo Indians who spoke Caris, and so I was raised with Caris speakers and some Spanish speakers. But So storytelling basically it's everything i mean like if you ask somebody how to get to albuquerque or how to get this or what happened over there or everything is about the news you know i mean in those days no one had televisions i mean i know it's hard for people well you're not that old i said yeah but nobody had any you know there might have been televisions but we lived in the reservation and and everything like if you asked a person a question and then their response to it would always be a story and if anybody asks you a question, your response would be a story because you wouldn't just point. You said, how do I get from here to there? You said, well, you know, let me tell you. And, and you would begin and you would begin and you would go and you would go. 
And if you're talking with the Indians, you know, uh, of course, that's not cool to say Indians anymore, but uh, anyway, that's what Indians call each other, is that um, they say uh, you have to actually know the mythologies of all the rocks and the story of what happened in such and such canyon, even the historical stuff that happened a long time ago and not so long ago and last week and where this cow got hit by a truck and this, that, and the other. And, I mean, people who come to New Mexico are very frustrated very often because they'll ask directions and somebody says, well, you know, if you go down here a few miles, you'll see where the dog, this dog used to sleep all the time under this tree. The tree is not there anymore, neither is the bridge, but you take a left about two miles before you get there. And they say, well, what are you talking about? Get out of here. And I say, well, and because you've got to know everything that ever happened in the area to get where you want to go because if you don't, you're not going to get there, you know. So storytelling was just a natural uh, way of being human beings everywhere you go in the world. And of course, New Mexico is not unique in that. I mean, if you go to Ireland, it's worse. But um, or anywhere, anywhere you go to South Africa, you go to Botswana, you go to Guatemala, very famous for that until very recently. So now with the proliferation of um, mass media and all sorts of communicative ideas, you know, the idea of the information age, information didn't actually help anybody tell stories. You would have thought. With all the machinery, all of a sudden the story, the oral thing would be bigger, but it's actually not. So everyone's texting and reducing all these stories or the way of speaking to one another so that they get through it faster so they can get somewhere where they're not yet uh, arrived, you know. So uh, so-called storytelling is actually irrelevant if you don't have story listeners. You don't have people who can hear it. And um, so... It's very difficult. Uh, I, I started a whole school that is based on teaching people how to be able to hear. And um, well, they want to. Their natural, natural, um, inborn uh, legacy and largesse that coming from being human being on this earth is the capacity to hear the stories that are already being told. I mean, the whole world, the wild world, especially the you know natural world, if you want to call it that is always constant story, constant. And if you're awake enough to hear and see it, there it is. And if you're going to relate it to somebody, you've got to be able to remember it. So you've got three things. One, to be able to listen. You got The second thing, you've got to be able to remember. And then the, the way to relate it always is in story and mythologic form. So when you lose your mythologic base of the land, in other words, the land you walk across, no longer is where the sun's wife fell from the sky. You know, when she hit the ground, she became an echinacea plant and so on and so forth, which we no longer call echinacea, but the son's wife's dead. And then she split in half and made two twins, and those two twins, one is this plant, and the other other twin was the people whose uh, my wife's people descend from. You know, And so you're walking across the land, you have all that in place. If you don't have all that in place, that doesn't mean the land still isn't telling that story. It's just a matter of beginning to listen and find it again. So for me, storytelling was never a thing that I learned to tell stories. It was I learned to hear them. So that's you know, basically, uh, I mean, I write all these funny books, and I've tried as hard as I can to make it so that they're really good to read out loud, <laughs> you know. And uh, so instead of just sitting there and, you know, reading, I mean, you know the, how they are when in school, in grade school, in the old days before they had all these computers and things, you know, the teachers would whack you with the rulers and quit moving your lips, you know. <laughs> don't, don't, don't talk when you read, you know. And I'm telling everybody, talk when you read, man, you know. Read out loud. Uh, speak these words so that the, the deliciousness of the the way the words go together makes something beyond you know just something that goes in one ear and out the next. 
And the other thing is that the English was always a colonial language. I mean, even in England, I mean, it was English. English language was never a language that formed from people from the people. It formed from the top and went down, it didn't come from the bottom up. And there was no such thing as a pagan English, or what you might call a pre-Christian English, either. You know, after 1066 and the norms and all that nonsense. But the point is that I'm trying to make English carry ideas, words, thoughts, sounds, musicalities that actually it's creators don't want it to carry. I mean, even the computers, if you try to be me and you send these things to the publisher, the computer, if you put it in the computer ease there, you know, for it to to straighten out any typos or anything, ooh, man, this thing would I mean, tries to put all my senses in prison, wants to cut them in half, you know what I mean? It's really comical. And, and it's a war. It's a war between the publishers, their editors, and me, and I actually had to sign these big contracts that said I would not add more uh, <laughs> chapters, you know, when they sent it back. Because they said, okay, if you didn't understand this, then it means we have to explain it. So then if, uh, here comes another story, another chapter. Says, oh, now it's bigger. The ink's going to cost more, you know. And so it's pretty silly. But, um, yeah, storytelling is the natural way of people. I mean, and animals and plants and the sun and the moon. I mean, the science is basically being able to listen to the story. You know, the, where anybody is listening when you try to recount it, it depends on how much of the mythologic relationship with the wild and the land that's around you and the people that's around you and whatever happened that you can carry inside and the listener can hear. Otherwise, the storyteller is all by themselves. It's a terrible, terrible fate. Eh? So that's the end of the book. Do you have the disobedience of the daughter of the sun there in your hand? Oh, you mean the book? Yes. Yeah, I have one here. Yeah, yeah sure. Would you, I? I just want listeners to to hear how beautiful it is. Would you read the author's note on one forty three? Because that's <laughs> that's where you talk about reading it out loud. You know, I love you, man. Because you actually read my books. You it's know? beautiful. The people just looked at them or read the flap copy or something. It's horrible flap copies. Yeah, sure. Uh, what, what page would you want? 143. Okay, it's... let me put the phone down just for a second. Sure. All right, here we go. It's the fish page, sure. It says, um, this is called, it says, author's note, believe it or not. That's me, Martin Preto. All right, a story such as this is a living organism, and like all of us, needs to eat. To be fed, it must be read aloud. So please, read it out loud to the young, read it to the old, read it to the middle-aged, read it to the sick, read it to the incredulous, read it to the polluted lakes, read it out loud to your dead ancestors. Read it out loud over the phone to someone you can't be with. Read it to an unhappy, human-ravaged, tired hunk of land. Read it to your sweetheart, read it aloud to your keepers and your wardens, whether they be your bosses, ancestral prejudice, or a man with keys and a gun. Read it to your father. Read it to your mother. Above all, read it out loud to yourself, especially that part of you that no one seems to see. And then the next time you have a chance to go to the water, give a new loaf of bread to the ducks or the pigeons or a homeless woman or or those menacing raccoons and say, please, story, receive a little of the original flower and earth. Jump up and live again. And now, and no then that those refugees at the edge of our villages are teeth in the mouth of the watery soul of the earth whose divine indigenous nature also lives forgotten at the edge of our hearts. That's a true story. 
and is thereby fed a bit by the gesture, the divine, who so richly feeds us with her story. All blessings. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that's powerful. That's true. I mean, it's funny that uh, the voice, human voice is such a gorgeous thing, you know. I mean, it can be. It should be. And when you take it away from the people, ooh, man. I mean, I live in Atitlan, Guatemala, you know, for a long time. Well, not a long time. I mean, for, you know, a decade and a half. And <clears throat> everything was speaking. And the people were, I mean, every one of them spoke like kings and queens, even the five-year-olds. I mean, and uh, their idea was that speaking actually made things happen and that the whole world was made out of words. Like, you know, grass, plants, ducks, the corn, the earth itself, the rising of the sun was actually a story being told. And that matter was formed out of sound as it came through a filter from another uh, dimension. And so the world was actually all the beings that are holy and uh, speaking themselves alive and speaking and they're into relationships with each other alive. So humans had this obligation that when they spoke to one another to speak in such a way, even when they were mad or pissed off <laughs> or going at each other's throat, at least they had the depth of it, the elegance of even the insult had to be grand. There's, there's no swear words, you know, you just know everybody's grandmother and where everybody's moles are on their butt and you can really make a, a statement and then just go at it, you know. And so it was this amazing relief to me to, when I could finally speak to Tuhil to be able to, uh, you know, just be part of that and be floating in that great, like a, I used to say in my books, like a big tongue in a vat of honey, you know, you just, whoa, here we go. And then to be, have that ripped away from you, I imagine most all human beings has this originally. You know, so that's the great grief I think people's living with, you know, storytelling loss and the story being lost and story living loss and the story hearing loss because everything's pre-digested now and thrown on the, on the movie screen or, you know, these DVDs or whatever people are watching and it just clonks them over the head. And that's why it's so popular is because the one thing about stories is that at least for humankind throughout history, I believe, you know, um, is that it always pretty much has to do with fire. <laughs> you know, if you build a fire anywhere, people start showing up, you know, and they're pretty soon they're telling a story. It might even be the fire marshal, you know, he comes over and says, hey, you can't build a fire here, you know, but then he tells you why you can't build a fire, and you say, why you're building a fire, and pretty soon he's telling you what happened to his grandfather, you know. And pretty soon there's stories everywhere, because that's where all the food comes out, is where the fire is. So you invite somebody over for dinner, right? And they all end up in the kitchen. There ain't nobody sitting. Where, or if you have a fireplace, you might be lucky to keep them in the other room. But <laughs> no, wherever there's the, the, some sort of elemental fire, that's where all the stories are happening. All the yentas, you know, they're, they're telling their tales, man, you know, and all this going on. And the same thing is going on with the television or with the computer screen. The people, you know, if they don't have the fire, if they're not cooking, you know, they're just, you know, who knows what they're doing, microwave or something, or going out to dinner then they're going to be in front of that thing that's pretending to be a talking fire, you know, like a computer or a television. And that's where they congregate. But the thing is hollow. It's empty. You know, it doesn't know you. It doesn't know your stories, man. And you can't, you can talk back to it to a, in a form, but not really, not really, you know. So the mythology is not there. So that's, that's, that's the insidious uh, hole it has on people's heads, you know, it's because uh, it's sitting there being, trying to pretend to be a fire as best as you can, but it can't be. Mm. 
One of the things that you said about about your style, the one that's that's driving those those editors crazy, is that you're <laughs> you're trying to use English in a way you said it a couple of different ways, trying to use English in a way that doesn't kill or uh, or trying to use that that English is a language of instant depression. And so you're <laughs> trying to get in there to to make it do things that it should to make it live um, rather than kill, to make it sing and praise and be delicious right. rather than right. subtract. Well, it's not only subtracting, but it's, it's extract. Because most of, uh, you know, modern language, English is the, you know, main corporate, but it's not certainly anymore the main corporate. It's got all sorts of uh, languages doing this now that didn't used to do it. But it's based on extraction, based on mining, based on business, based on getting something out of it. What am I going to get out of this situation? What am I going to get out of this menu? What am I... And one of the main problems is the pronouns. Because like in native languages and other languages not as native, you know, uh, he, she, and it are really pretty damn limited. I mean, you know, for instance, in all the native, I speak a number of native tongues, and I speak a couple of them real, real well, and none of them have it's. There's no such thing as an it, you know. So when you start to speak in a language like English, you're going to call, I don't know, I still can't get over this thing that they call babies it's, you know. <laughs> this baby, what does it think? I mean, what do you mean, what does it think? He, she, is, what's baby think? And animal are it, you know, your car's an it, you know, the mountain's an it, the sun's an it. I said, whoa, man, this is really strange. So even just changing that, you know, then that makes you sound like some country bumpkin. Everybody says, well, my car, she's really a good car, you know. Yeah, that's fine with me, you know. And the rainstorms, they have she's and he's too. So, but then in English, that becomes very, very limited because you have, um, you know, only he and she to draw. So you've got to start to re, you've got to ask the language yourself, you, mu- you must be in pain language, you know. You must be really hurting. So let's find what you want to say, you know, and you ask the language yourself. And so I tried as hard as possible, uh, as you can tell, to make a, a place for the language to speak things that it really doesn't have words for. So what you do is you take a word, you know, and English has got some amazing words. I mean, most people aren't using them anymore. But And then you, you like James Joyce says, this is you break the atoms, you know. Instead of breaking atoms, you break down the etymology. So you look at where the word comes from, and it starts to open up, and you make a whole paragraph. So one word becomes all these things. And instead of it being a curse, it all of a sudden becomes this gigantic blanket of beauty that goes over things. And I have a section in, uh, I think it's the unlikely piece of Kuchimukig. It talks about ethnologists, you know, who are always coming to these places and asking people a question. And, you know, <laughs> to really people, I mean, they make the Irish look really curt, you know. I mean, they just go on and on. And these people are losing their minds and their synapses are cracking. So they either get taken in by it or they just wander off in disgust and make up their own story about what they thought was told to them. But the, the idea is, is that uh, to, to help people believe that our words are alive and are very much alive and that they need a home. And they need a place to live. And if you ask a, a, a concrete question, you're not uh, giving it a home. It doesn't have no bush to sit in. It doesn't have any environment to live in. It's just totally out of context, like some, you know, uh, cultural artifact that's put in a museum on a wall. It doesn't have its culture to go with it. So 
uh, I try, you know, I'm, I don't think, well, with varying success, of course, in English to constantly make it so that that, that, that uh, idea of isolating all those things from its context is frustrating. There's no way to understand what's going on in the book unless you start to transform your own way of thinking and talking by going, speaking out loud what is in the book to get to the last word in the sentence, which means then you have to re-read not only the first sentence of that paragraph, but that whole damn chapter. And then you come back again to where you left off, which is actually how storytelling in the village works. Because nobody understands that what the stories are. They're really, really powerful. The native story, like you were talking about the disobedience of the daughter of the son, that kind of tzich, as they call it, is um, no one will understand on the first telling what it's really actually about, or the second, or the third, or the fourth. As a matter of fact, most people can't stay awake to hear the whole dang thing because they only tell stories at night anyway. So um, it's always having to go back to the beginning and go through the whole thing again. And as you live longer and live more and live more awake, you start to realize, oh, I see, this is what's going on. But you don't extrapolate it. You don't analyze it in a sense like a Jungian or a, some sort of ethnologist where you take this chunk out of that to, you know, explain this, it all still has to stay all in one piece, just like your body with your liver and your lungs and your heart and your blood and your nerves and your feet and your head and your eyes. They can't, you can't just pull out the liver and say, oh, yeah, I got the core of what this story is about. <laughs> Wait a minute, you killed the whole story. <laughs> you can't do that. It's all got to be there. But I can understand people's impetus. But English is very analytical. He wants to be analytical, but it's, weirdly enough, strangely enough, it's not precise. And, you know, you speak some native tongues like Navajo, one of my favorite languages in the world is Tene, you know, Tadene Navajo. And I don't really speak it, but I'm a student of it. I, I speak, I have some friends, Navajos. I love that language because it's so damned precise. And yet it's so amazingly uh, uh, courteous and beat around the bush in the sense that it, it continually makes this whole environment for the idea. I mean, you can't just say, hey, bring me that thing over there so I can stick it on my horse. You know, oh, it depends on the shape of it, whether it glints in the sun, whether it smells like this, whether it has this. The whole verb changes <laughs> in that pronoun. Like so many cases makes Greek look really, really skinny. But I'm telling you, language is uh, one of the things that human beings have that is uh, at their disposal that is not going to cost them huge amounts of money in order to make uh, the great... Uh, superb, grandiose, grandiose uh, soul uh, live again so we can relate to one another and the world more importantly and know that we are, our bodies are made of those things of the world. Without that, English is a depressing language, a depressive language and a depression-making language and it cannot cure its depression with its own language. It's just, you can talk to your blue in the face and you're still in the same barrel, you know. So that's why I think, you know, a little way of putting what I was trying to say when I said that. Well, there are these moments, I mean, when when I realize I'm going to have no choice but to conduct this interview with you in English, which is, you know, your third language among many, um, of how to to get at some of the the beauty of of what you bring across when you talk about your time um, speaking Tutuhil in the village and the kinds of capacities that language has for making home in the world and and for praise right. and for, for praise. grief. There yeah. You, there you go. You got praise. That's it right there. Um, one, well, like you just used the word get. 
Okay, that's an extractive word, right? That's the word to go get something out of. How am I going to get English to say this? You can't get English to say it because English is not going to get it. <laughs> it has to change. All of those things, the it's have to go, the verbs to be have to be changed, and everything has to has to be changed. But once again, it depends on whether or not you have a listener. You can't just do it yourself, and then you'll be running around talking this strange new language. So there has to be some sort of motion, and that motion has to have a grief relationship to the loss in the first place. So it's a, a bit of a catch-22, because you have to uh, realize the problem in order to do anything, but at the same time, you can't attack the problem in an English sort of way, or not only English, let's just say modern civilization mentality kind of way, in other words, where you're trying to mine it, alter it in order to get what you want. It's not about getting what you want. So the idea is that the humans are not here to get what they want, but to give a gift to make the world worth descending from, you see. So that whole mentality, once you start to speak like that, little by little, little by little, things start to listen, and then those things perk up, and then that organ that knows how to say and think those things starts to develop, because I, I believe it's an atrophied organ inside a human being when you start to use certain language such structure there are certain grooves that have been cut that are very, very problematic, kind of like Roman road systems that they were still using, you know. Whereas uh, <clears throat> there are also synaps- synaptical, you know, synaptic uh, byways, which are uh, can become very, very fluid. And this is one of the things that is lost when you get a rigid language of science. Science starts trying to uh, gain again a, a language that is uh, more fluid and still precise. So it develops all these crazy, you know, mathematics and stuff like that. But on the regular, everyday person getting around town, the whole idea is to get around town. The whole idea is to get what you need in order to get home, to get away from that world, to get in a place to plug into the tube. And, you know, it's no longer about the fact that it's the way you go around, the way you walk down the street, the way you drive down the street, the way you address all of the molecules that are in your cell phone and all the sadness and the collodium that's been taken out of the Congo with all the warlord and this, that, and the other. All those, those awarenesses, if you're going to pray, which the word praise comes from, yeah, then you've got to know all of these stories, which means you've got to know the history of everything, but not the cut and dry, goofy old history you read in a book, but the actual, what happened, the story again of what happened. And then when you make the praise, and the only way to make a decent praise is to know the story of what you're addressing. I mean, so that means you have to have listened or you have to have watched. And even the thing you're trying to praise very often doesn't even know itself. So it's a, it's a place to begin with the language, you know. And, I mean, language is not just a spoken thing, too. I mean, you've got language, all kind of plant, animal, everything has its language. It's just a matter of do you have the ears to hear what's saying, you know. So, I, I'd like I to share with you a moment as an expression of gratitude to you. So two years ago, I got diagnosed with cancer. Um, And it it was really hard and, you know, devastating in a lot of ways. And and about two years, well, you know, not too long ago, I hear you say, Shahabe Shokaba, to talk about a tumor is petrified sorrow. Right. And I had never that that kind of expression that way of looking at what i was going through was so illuminating and it took another language to even open this dim crack in that 
scientific, extractive, medical, technological <laughs> way of thinking about my illness um, and thinking about what it might mean and what it might be asking. Um, but then to hear you just bring in a, a different language, a different way of seeing, a different way of, of imagining, um, it was incredible. I'm glad to hear him of some use on there. But uh, one thing I have to say is that, of course, does not belong to me. That that belonged to a whole um, lineage or largesse of uh, human beings that are much longer and ancienter than I am. And they come from that uh, way of thinking. So the whole idea of uh, beast, petrified sadness, petrified sorrow, uh, is extremely old and not rare among people in the world, but it's become rare for whatever reasons that were ones we're talking about a little bit today. So I'm uh, I'm appreciative that uh, your appreciation is going there, but we got to give the appreciation to those ones that uh, that really came that way before we before I did. I was still very fortunate to you know trip in the sand at the right place and be taken in by these people. So well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I mean, in some ways, your work, the books that you've written, is this, there's this hope behind it, right? To to carry forward um, an indigenous tradition, an indigenous cosmology, an indigenous way of seeing um, that's, that's all but gone. Well... You know, I'm actually, I mean, that's a, that's, people say that to me. I'm opening, you know, I have another class coming. I've got a, a bit of a school, and every couple of years I open, I get a waiting list that's kind of too big, and so I, you know, I start another session class through the year, and I got a new one coming on this May. So, and people are always writing me, and a lot of them have said what you just said, and, and that's very nice of them, but truth is I'm not trying to do that. I, uh I don't. I think uh, any indigenous thinking that is put into uh, modern civilization will be, you know, sucked dry of its marrow and the husk thrown away, and be consumed like everything else it mines out of the world and the earth and people's souls, and petrifies more sorrow. What I'm saying is that the principles that made it so all people, and not now, but when the, in their indigenous beginnings, maybe fifty thousand years ago, in the Neanderthalic times, and they have this capacity and have had this capacity, and it was just not something that was only learned and taught, but it was innate in human being. And I'm not trying to reinstate what other people have had and have lost, because mind you, these things that you and I are talking about among the Tutu Hill are basically extinct there, by the way. People are always going down there and doing their yoga on the edge of the lake, hoping to run across, you know, Chivalio or somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, baby, it's gone, you know. <laughs> it's gone a long time ago, and I really regret having if any of my books were in part of any of the desecration of that because of all these crazy people going with all their money and making all these centers and retreats, and, you know, the actual culture itself, they have no concept of what it was, and they're part of the destruction of it. But, you know, that's another subject, I suppose. But point is, is that I'm not trying to take something from the past and and make it come back alive again because it's not there. I'm trying to say that in the seed germ of what is still here, there are intrinsic and innate things in all people where the actual spiritual DNA knows how to remake itself 
but not in the form it was, but in an adjusted form to the conditions and with it with which it finds itself. It's like if you have a tropical plant that finds itself in an ice age, it say and has seeds, you may say, let's wait a little bit till the warmer guys, or it might find a way to grow in a cold, uh, rationalist, crazy condition, and somehow keep alive the principles of those things that you were talking about earlier so that they can come busting loose again and give life to itself and make more seeds, but not the ones that were, but another kind mm-hmm. that still contains that. And that's, that's what old Chief Leo, he was the guy that everybody calls my teacher. He was actually just a fellow. He was like one of my best friends. And he died and he left me with this big can of worms to do what he was doing. And I left the country and he said to me, he said a great thing to me, which at the time when he said it to me, this is the day before he dies, you know, he said, which I, you know, I thought I fully understood because I was, you know, a young man and young men think they know everything, you know, and I learned a lot of things there, but they weren't like little objects in a box that you learn. They're principles. They're like sort of like running around your body. They become part of you, the network of your very, very fiber. And uh, he said, now, you main thing for you, kid, is to keep what he said in Sutri. He said, Don't let the seeds die. He said, That's the main thing. Keep them all going. And now, don't be prejudiced against the form they take after you plant them the first time. <laughs> when they come back, they're not going to look like what you're used to. And you're going to say, Oh, those aren't the real ones. You know, let's have a real live Indian thing. They're going to be how they're going to be. And your job is to keep them alive, not to judge them on the way they look, okay? And I, you know, thought, I mean, there were actual seed seeds, too, that we were keeping alive, which is, in another story, I wrote a whole book on that, but, and then like a piece of kuchimu kick, but what he was saying was, is that something bigger, because while he was in charge of all these bundles in the village, there was one that got stolen, and it went no one knows where, and he was always, the people were always kind of angry at him for it. And I spent so much time trying to get it back and thinking I found where it was and actually one point thought I had and I didn't and it turned out not to be. But um, in the meantime, the hope for it was so great that I realized the hope for it has so much value because even though we didn't have the quote, you know, actual thing, the hope that it still exists somehow made us into human beings. And so the actual search and the actual keeping alive of something didn't have to do with getting it. It had to do with knowing it was there. It was like heaven. You're not supposed to get to heaven. You're not supposed to have Israel. It's supposed to be a state of affairs that you're always moving toward. And the moving becomes the beauty, you see. And the, and the trying to go toward something becomes the beauty. So I'm not trying to bring back or raise from the dead or reinstate any of these things because people have been trying to do that for you know centuries and they've, they've just been all you know jailed and stuck on the shelves and in books and the culture trundles on this big juggernaut insanity as it is so i don't believe in that but you know one more muzzle tov, you know more power to them if they can do it but for me it's basically that there's something beyond me and bigger than all that and the, and the hope and the beauty that arises that has never been seen before is like a seed that has an old DNA that is an old seed. All of a sudden, starts growing a plant no one's ever seen before. And it isn't me that told it to do that. It isn't science that GMO'd it to do it. It's got its own mind that has been waiting there for thousands of years. And so that's what basing all the stuff I do on, you know. So yeah. 
And and just so that listeners know that you see that as a potential in in each person, right? You you talk about something yeah. called the indigenous soul. Um, right. Unfortunately, and, that's been stolen and turned into some really trite crap out there. So oh, when man. you hear the word, don't... Oh God. Anyway, I don't get it. But I just want to say, I actually stopped using that word except in my school because people are using it for things that I, that I had no intention to be useful for. But yes, I did invent that word. But the indigenous soul means that there is a... There is a seed heart that remembers how to be a, a human being. It doesn't mean it's going to be according to what we tell it to be or what Martin Brecht thinks it should be, but according to what it's got to be. But it cannot exist as a solid individual without the culture of other individuals and the land and the um, plants and animals that surround it together. So, like, a, a, one human being not going to make this universe, you see. But the the inspiration that might come <laughs> from that starting to show itself. Actually, and a person will probably show up in them, making them think they're losing it or that they're getting sick. And it's not an illness, but it's actually, the, as you put it, the indigenous DNA, the indigenous soul, trying to resurface through what you might call an uncooperative uh, soil type, you know, in our psyches of today, and trying to show up again, you know, in a different way, but still with the integrity of the original um, roadmap that was given long, long, long ago, you see. So, yeah, yeah, definitely individual, but the individual is, you know, we're, we live in the age of the individual and the age of me, 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 and all that, but it's uh, actually more than that. It's more than that, so that one individual is not going to succeed, whereas the holy indigenous soul of all things, that's the one that comes out uh, shining. So if you're going to live your life in order to get what you want, in order that you're going to survive, we're already dead doing that. Uh, but if you're going to make something that you not because you want to give a gift to the holy and you want to give a gift to a time that has never been seen yet and that you're not going to see it either, then you start to become a human being in the process of trying to do that. But as soon as you're doing it, like, I want my breakfast, or I want my this, I'm going to see this at the end of the day. If I go to this workshop, I'm going to learn how to do this, and then I will be free of disease and problems and psycho psychosis and depression and bad friends. And nope. It's the thing is you're not going to get it, and you don't need to get it, but you've got to be the most beautiful being you can to give a gift to a time beyond your own. And that's a very old thing that I'm trying to teach. So. And that's not popular and very un-American, let me tell you. Definitely not a business idea. So, yeah, and not, you know, people say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, can I just take this and make myself a career out of it? And a lot of people have, but it doesn't mean what I'm talking about, you know, not at all. So, so Bolad's Kitchen is is the place where you're you're experimenting with this, where you're inviting people to to accept this invitation. Well... I don't know if I'd put it like that. It's, it's a hard-driving school. Man. How would you Everybody put it? Work like a, they got to work like a devil there. A lot of the people, the New Agers, come there and after three hours, they say, Jesus Christ, I didn't know I had to, like, work. You know, I said, well, yeah. I mean, I come from working class people. I might be a king, man, but we comb our own horses and we shovel our own horse poop, you know? So, no, I mean, it's it was originally uh, set up because of two reasons two reasons. One, as I was spending so much time running around being famous, that at one point I said, you know what, this is silly, man. I, one year my, I got married to a beautiful lady who was 
mother of the two children we have now here, and a uh, wonderful lady. And after so much uh, grief and trouble with that area, um, we were doing like 92 round-trip flights a year on these you know, great big jet-burning fuel tanks. And we were never home. I was home like three months of a year. And I said, wow. And every time I would go to a place, I would do what I did. And it was basically not workshops. It was basically rituals to feed the, these beings that we're talking about. But every time I would show up in the place again, perhaps the next year or six months later, I would have to reinvent the wheel all over again. And uh, it was just like, what am I doing, you know? These people are wonderful and great, you know, but I can never go any farther than I've just gone. So I thought, well, maybe I'll make a little school, which I always hated the idea of a school. Everyone's got a dang school, but I didn't want to do it. But I said, well, maybe maybe that's the way to go. So I make a school that is a non-school school. It's a school where we do two things. And one in the afternoons, we do a lot of things with our hands, which were uh, the things that the spiritual way of going about those things with our hands from the ancient, ancient peoples up to recent time. But we never started at the beginning. We start in the middle where the people are, go back and forward simultaneously and advance it from the rear and advance from the front to make something brand new. And then in the mornings I do lectures, but I do them only through riddles. I do these pretty fancy riddles where the people go and they try to figure out what it's all about. And what they find out in the process of trying to put it all together is so amazing. And so I was trying to figure out in this school, okay, that was one thing. It's in order to get off the road, and it did take off, and it was good, and it was great. But the the point is this: is that I wasn't making it for that reason. The main reason was because I couldn't figure out in my mind since I was about six years old. You know, I grew up in New Mexico, like I said, I was born in Ohio, but I didn't grow up there. I grew up in New Mexico in the reservation here, right under, not too far away from the dreaded, you know, bomb city of Los Alamos, which you could see at night twinkling up on the side of the Hamas Mountains there. And my father had been a, a flyer in World War II. He'd been a bombardier, you know, fighting against Hitler and dropping bombs on people. And he turned into a pacifist two missions from the end of the war because he realized he was making kids without any parents and he was blowing people's teeth out and children in the orphanages without any arms. And he said, geez, what am I doing? You know, I can't do this anymore. And so he became this amazing, weird guy that once he got out of the, you know, military, he uh, wanted to become a, a paleontologist and went to, he married my mom, which is another story. It's all very funny and interesting. But the point is, is that this place where I'm living, you know, my father had this terrible relationship with bombs. In those days, they weren't doing missiles yet. You know, still dropping bombs on people and atomic bomb and all that. And so I kept saying to myself as a little kid, I said, how is it that a whole bunch of people, you know, leaving Europe and Asia and coming to a place that they haven't screwed up yet, do the exact same thing all over again and keep messing it up for themselves, not much less what's already there. And so, you know, I kept rolling that in my head, you know, and then the 60s came through and I was a teenager and and <laughs> you can imagine. And um, and then finally, you know, it never left me, but, you know, I grew and grew and grew and grew in, 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 uh, in anatomy, you might say, until when I was in Guatemala, I started saying, no, man, there's got to be not only a reason, and we can't go back in time to find the reason and then all of a sudden, you know, nip it in the bud and change everything that's happened after that. We have to understand what we're carrying right now in our hearts and our heads that's causing this to happen constantly as individual with what we're surrounded by 
And so we're carrying this whole cadre of mentality that we're not even aware of, and not that we're evil or bad or in any way whatsoever. So there had to be something that instigated people to be start fleeing life instead of being at home where they were. And so the Bolek Kitchen, I invented uh, the word Bolek is a, a Mongol uh, cook, actually, for Kublai Khan, a very amazing guy who comes out, turns out, it was when they write all the things about Marco Polo that turns out in Chinese, it wasn't Marco Polo, it was this Mongol fellow, which we won't go into it now because it's a long, long story, but a name is after that because his whole thing was to make it so every tribe and every person that was under this empire would have the right food that they wanted and would be seated at the feast without anybody feeling the lesser, and everybody was together. Nobody was felt less, but nobody was felt small. Everybody was a king, everybody was a queen. So this guy, Bullet was in charge of doing that, so I called it Bullet's Kitchen, you see. And the investigation of finding out where all this is inside their own self is each individual with their own ancestry at the same time trying to find a, a, a fertile ground where to plant a seed of what you call the indigenous soul with actual manual dexterity of knowing how to make and do things to become people again. So, like you said, experiment is probably even a fancier word than what it is. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> it's definitely, uh, I don't know, what, it's a phenomenon for sure, and it took off on its own, and it's doing very well, and I'm the only teacher mostly until I bring somebody who does something I don't know how to do, and, and just small amounts. But, yeah, and anyway, and the books are basically for people to know that there is somebody and someplace still doing this without computers and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. What do what riddles get you? What do riddles get you as a teaching method, as a way? Are you saying riddles? I'm riddles, sorry, yeah. Riddles. I, as well, soon as I all, heard you teach by riddles, I had to know. You know what, always by riddles, yeah. Well, everybody in the world teaches by riddles. I mean, this is I, certainly not my invention. Um, uh, for instance, all of the Rig Veda, you know, in parts of India, and all of the old uh, hundred questions of the Chinese and the old questions of the Celts, you know, to the kings. All of these things are riddles, and the responses to those riddles are not stock. You don't have a stock reply to a riddle. What you have to know, as you started out, uh, we were talking earlier, is that you have to know the story of what all of those little things are inside that statement of the riddle asked, how they relate to something much bigger before you showed up on this earth. So riddle is the only really true way to learn. When you learn by, you know, reading a book, and this is a fact, and we put in the information, you don't learn anything. You don't have to go the route, as they say in, in mine. You know, you don't have to take the, the road to get there and learn all the little turns and twists and the people and the places and the, this thing and the, that thing. All those things are gone. But with the riddle, no one has the same path in a school. In other words, I have this riddle. I give uh, many riddles throughout the years, and... Um, this man will go this way, and this little lady will go this way, and this gay guy will go this way, and this gay woman will go this way, and this person will go this way. And some of them come up with the most amazing things I never knew about at all, you know. And the, But in the, when I start to teach from the riddle, I start to say, well, what we were talking about when this riddle was, was born was this. But this person said that, and this person said so when you start to uh, teach with riddle, you, you get around the depression of English's verb to be, where this is this, and this is that, and this is all this is, and this is not that, and blah, blah. That, that totally disappears because you can't do it with that mentality. So information no longer you realizes that knowledge does not come from information. Knowledge comes from the wise application of what is learned on the journey, you see. 
So uh, with the riddles, um, you find, you know, all like Pythagoras and all the people of the past always use riddle in order to begin uh, teaching because the people then you're not, you don't have just a teacher saying what something is. It's actually the world itself talking back to you, and you have to learn the stories of this and the stories of that, the stories of this and the stories of that. You might not learn the same ones, but you will learn some ones, and they will all take you there eventually. But you might go, oh, all the way around this way or all the way around that way. Oh, it's just quite amazing. And, um, and plus, it's just so, everybody's so relieved by, at first people get mad, you know, oh, Jesus, it's so much work. But once they get into it, you know, they actually, you know, you got to watch out. You have to pass a law against it for a while because they like, get addicted to it. But it's, um, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, when I live in Guatemala, uh, when, or even when you're a child here in New Mexico, when like you were asking me earlier about storytelling, well, storytelling actually comes from riddle because all the prayers of praise, praise and prayer, they um, they come from riddle. Like if you hear a, a Native American prayer, not these these kind of hokey ones that you hear everyone doing now. I mean, Jesus, I shouldn't say that, but they're so terrible. But you have, nobody has any idea what is being said. I mean, even if you speak the language, you wouldn't know what there was any of those things we're referring to. Because you're not speaking when you're praising, in this case, to a person or to anybody. You're not addressing a crowd. You're praying to these holy beings who need everything to be spoken in form of a riddle for them to accept it. So the unraveling of the riddle kind of kills that, but you have to be able to put it back together again. So once you've understood all of the characteristics of what's got to go into a prayer, you have to put it into a riddle for it to be heard by what, for what's divine in this earth. So uh, riddles are the only way that you can actually pray. So most of the really old prayers that you see written down, you know, even the Greek ones, all the African ones, all the ones from Zimbabwe and all these places, you know, like uh, West Africa and Mali, and no one has any idea what they meant unless they go on the route because they're all in riddle form. And so when the teaching is coming along, the delving into the riddle doesn't kill the riddle, but it teaches you what the prayer is actually saying, and it has to have a story. So, for instance, if you're trying to praise the, uh, the salt in the sea, you have to know so many things about salt, how it began, what was this, what was that, where it came from. And if you have a mythologic culture, you have to know all those things, too. So they have to make references to those in the praise itself. And when you look back at it, if you're not from those places, you look at it and say, I have no idea what this person is talking about. But the Holy does. The Holy does know what you're talking about because the whole story of what it's referring to is in there without making a massacre of the story by saying its name directly. Now, this takes us to the thing about hunter languages and languages of people who are in, the, uh, in a way of uh, being where there's enormous courtesy. In the modern world, doesn't have too much courtesy. Uh, it's lost that because they're so scared. They're running so fast to get someone to get somewhere and to get what they need in order to get out of where they are to get where they're never going to get and all that crap. But the thing is, is that people in Native societies, and I'm not just talking about Native Americans, but Native peoples all over the world and village peoples are enormously courteous people. There are some people have retained that in other cultures too, by the way. So if when you're approaching something, everything has to be done with a, a permission. And so, like, if you're in, in, a, in a culture like that, you will never, like, go up to somebody and say, Hey, Martin, how are you doing? You know, you, don't, you know, you say their name in public. You only say it when you're talking behind their back, you know. <laughs> and somebody talk about Martin, they say Martin when I'm not looking. They call me by a kinship term, you know, it's brother or 
father or little boy or whatever, you know, this thing or that thing. And um, and same goes for like when you're praying. Like for instance, a Tutu Hill person, when they're praying, when the sun comes up, everybody prays when the sun comes up. And they don't say, hey, look, there's the sun. You know, they don't say that like the sun's not there. It's like, what? You know, he's just looking at you, man. You don't act like he's not there. So you you always call him father, you know. Father, so good to see your face. Good to feel the, the aroma of your breath again, which is the breath of day, right? And so, uh, you know, you have this courtesy of not actually saying what something, quote, is. I, in other words, i.e. the verb to be. You don't have the verb to be thing. But beating around the bush, which means it's spoken in a riddle that has a great elegance without you know, being so forward as to plow over it with a tank and just say, this is a cat, instead of you saying, this is, this um, very whiskered, soft thing goes padding by me in such a cat-like way, you know. You will say something like that in other languages. So you lose the depression instantly of this being this crunch, I killed that, I've got that, now it's nothing. The sun is just a ball of fire. It's not my father, you see. And if the sun's rising in your body, which, by the way, lives in uh, your gallbladder, um, you know, you've got the, uh, the shaman is addressing that in that fashion. So what I'm trying to say is, is that riddles make it so that you start to understand that the entire world is this gigantic, beautiful poetry praise riddle that you don't need to understand every aspect of it. But as you delve into and try to understand you realize all the magnificent roots and all the magnificentness of all that surrounds you and that you yourself are part of and fit in there somehow, hopefully. So, I'm sorry. I, I, you know, I do have this Irish grandmother who <laughs> so I never shut up. I all I do is talk, so I apologize for that. I just want to listen. I'm not listen. a very good interview. You know, I'll just talk a little bit. <laughs> well, I think at the end, something that comes across so many different ways in your books is that is that it this way of of being in and with and for the world suddenly life becomes delicious and beautiful and subtle when yeah. you use the word magnificent um, useful useful yes definitely well, that never true thing was said i don't know what else i could tell you you got it there's um in your book there's there's the description of how to approach the ocean if, if you have grief and and just what it would look like to have courtesy as you approach you know, the mother of all life um, to, to ask something of her. And, and you wait, you wait for a sign that you've shown enough courtesy before you even go forward. Truly, truly. You have to wait for the response, and most people, you know, they want someone to respond like a person. But everything responds like it is. Huh? So you plant a seed. You, ref- uh, you know, to um, to people when they plant seeds, they 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 call them funerals because they're killing actually the seeds for them. They ask its permission to plant them. They say to the seeds, "Is it all right?" for you that you die for the appearance and uh, uh, for the sake of human beings that when you die if you come reborn we will eat again and the seed has to reply and for you to plant and usually replies in dreams and when you plant 
you plant it, you don't go around, oh, we're planting our fields, these uh, oats, peas, beans, and barley grow, you know, all that nonsense. You plant and you have a certain amount of grief about that. And then a few days later, if all goes well, you see these little tiny sprouts <laughs> starting to poke through the ground, you know, it's so great. The little kids will come running in with the greatest sense of wonder and say, Sharubi, Sharubi, they'll say. He, their name came out, their name came out. The idea is, is that that's the response of the seed speaking back to the people, is they're showing up in a different form besides the seed, but as a plant, you see. And so that's the same as when the dawn comes up, when the sun comes up, what they call that the dawn sprout of the sun. It means it's, it's the seed was planted in the evening, he died in the jaws of the crocodiles of oblivion, he gone through the bowels of the earth, and he regrew really another day. And this uh, way of speaking, you see, so that deliciousness is that the courtesy is to wait for a response and not just go, you know, plowing along. I remember I had the one class, I had a guy who was from East Coast somewhere, things over from South Carolina, North Carolina maybe, where all of those, uh, you know, guys are trying to do new culture there. And he said, well, what about if you've already decided to cut down all these trees and you haven't asked their permission? <laughs> so we'll undecide it, you know. <laughs> And then go ask their permission. But what if I have to? You don't have to. You know, it's just like this idea, like, I want my cake and eat it too. I said, you have to wait for a response from the plant. And he says, well, how do I know that? Well, stick with Bullet Kitchen. After a while, you will know. So that could take a long time. Hey, right, that could take a long time. And that would be a lot longer time that you're alive before you go crashing into apocalypse. You know, it's a lot better to wait for a response from something beautiful than to go crashing and take what you want and then die the next day. Why live without a soul when you can live with a soul waiting? Eh? So, you know, sometimes they don't want to hear that. But, yeah, it's all right. The, the point being is just that um, to wait for a response after you've made a statement, that's very kind. There's a big joke in New Mexico and Arizona. I don't know if you ever hung out here very much, but there's different tribal people here. And there's still quite a few Tenet people out in Arizona. And a lot, of them are, a lot of those people are living out, mostly raising sheep and stuff out in the pretty far out in the bush, you know. And if you ever go to meet some of them, they always put you to work right away. And I, I know this one fellow, he's an American guy, a really nice fellow, and he's a good student too. And he would go out there, and he didn't know about these people, how they were, and he got him a job with one of them taking care of sheep, and they put him out on the, on the open land. And, and he was there six days in this uh, hogan, and with the, also with the, our little mobile home. Looking after the sheep, not one human being came by. Nobody, no hope, no narrows, nothing. So I got so lonely, I couldn't believe it. And then one day, the guy that had hired me, he showed up in his old truck. And he got out, and he said hi, and then he stood next to me for three hours without ever saying a word and got in and drove away and never said anything to me. I said, well, that's normal Navajo, what they call everything's fine. We don't say nothing. That's called you're still waiting for a response. Oh, he said, you got to learn how to talk to local lingo, man, you know. So it was very comical because he was just like dying from no human interrelation when the guy was relating to him totally in an old-time way. But I just had no idea that that's what was going on because everybody's different, you know. So, yeah, it's just amazing. But uh, the other thing is that people got to learn to listen, see what's around them, and, and listen to the story and talk the story. And I think even a very amateurish, bad, you know, not-so-good attempt is better than none at all. And it's not like you're going to do it right because there's no way to do it right when you have no precedent and you haven't seen it and you don't know what it is. I mean, I got very lucky as a child because, I mean, I was raised with uh, this kind of people and I was raised with those kinds of people. And my parents were kind of 
oh, very different than the rest of America, apparently. And, um, yeah, and, and I myself was born kind of crooked and not, not so strong physically, you know, so I had to go a little different route like people. And so, you know, I was, I was very fortunate that there were others who looked at me and said, hey, all right, this guy's going to hear this, and, and took me in, in a sense. So, but not everybody's as, as fortunate, and I understand that. So I started school. Maybe I can give a little something like that to the people, not as much as I got, but at least some small amount of that. And then I tried with my crazy books to put that so people maybe a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. You know, sometimes I get hate mail, too. And somebody says, I can't believe I was reading this book, the, the uh, what was it, Stealing Benefacio's Roses, and I didn't realize when I started that I was the villain. <laughs> I said, what is funny? You didn't feel like, realize it till like about the end of the book. No, I thought I was, was talking about somebody besides me. I didn't realize they were talking about me. And I said, well, like you're a villain. It's just like, let's do it different, you know? <laughs> ah, well, okay, do it. I was wondering if, if you could tell us, there, there's a person I love in The Smell of Rain on Dust, um, and it's about that ability to listen and talk, and you, you talk about Maria and your father. Oh, my old friend. And the conversations yeah, yeah, yeah. they would have, and, friend, and yeah. she's just so beautiful. She was the greatest lady on earth. I tell you what, she's a real plum-shaped woman, wonderful woman, yeah. What did you want to know about her? Well, I was just you. You were talking about this ability to learn how to listen, and and you give this quite hilarious and tender exchange of of you know the, the way you recount the conversations between your father and her, in yeah. which only they they know like three words of each other's languages, but there That's there's so word. much love at the bottom of it that the communication is passionate yeah. and total and complete understanding, despite the fact exactly. that the language is not no there. meaning. <laughs> Both of them had a lot of meaning, and they supplied the other one's meaning for them. And they would tell me to shut up, because I could speak both languages. <laughs> and both sides would tell no, be quiet, you're just a boy, you don't know what you're talking about. And I said, wait a minute, he's talking about shooting quail, and you're talking about you know, her nephew, her grandson who got put in jail. And it's like, no, it doesn't matter, we're just talking, you know. And, and this would, um, this, that was just one example, that was always happening with those people, you know, all the time. But, uh, oh, Maria Riano, she was a beautiful lady, and she had her foot uh, amputated from gangrene, you know, after falling off one of her houses there. But she was, uh, she was a great being. But the thing about her was that she was um, very traditional in village. I mean, it's hard to explain to people in the rest of the United States what we're talking about here, because I'm not even allowed to say the name of the village I grew up in. They're so secretive. I mean, it's so incredibly secretive. But so I've, I've respected it all along, and it kind of makes it difficult to talk about when you can't tell everybody where you're from. But... It's probably just as well, because otherwise we just all go there and start pestering everybody. But the point is that she was uh, a different, even inside her own culture, because she thought I was special. I was a little kid, you know, kind of cute little curly-haired guy. And, and she took care of me in many, many ways. She was like my grandmother, whereas I didn't really get to know my own grandmother too closely. And uh, when she um, spoke, she spoke a little bit of uh, New Mexico Spanish, which, by the way, is basically Sephardic Jewish Spanish. They would speak like Spain Spanish all around here. And she spoke her own native Karis in a little bit now. And um, she spoke extremely elegant style. But when my father, who was a guy from Ohio, of course, who 
had a little bit of problem speaking other languages, very good accent. He was just like, you know, totally white guy, you know. He's a, he's a good guy. He's a totally white guy. My mother knew, but him, yeah. And um, he he knew goodbye, he knew hello, and he knew let's eat. And that was it, man. And the only words they knew together in each other's language was let's eat. And they would talk, this old lady and, the, and my dad, you know, go on and on and on and on, smiling putting their hands and gesturing and slapping their thighs, you know. <laughs> Neither one of them had any idea what the other person was saying. And yet they had a perfectly good conversation. And then I started realizing, you know, the love that's in the language is not all in the meaning. I used to give these insane workshops because the, the Mayans, they have this other idea too, that there's a sacred, um, what you might call, argument that goes among animals that feeds everybody else. You get these parrots in the jungle, you know, who are very, very imperialistic, you know. And then there's the monkeys who are even more imperialistic. You know, you have howlers and spider monkeys and all kinds of parrots. And they're, you know, the parrots can fly really high above the, the cloud forest and they can see where all the ripe fruit is on the top of the umbrella of the certain kinds of trees. And so they always see it. And, you know, parrots, they are always got all these manuals, you know, they tell you how to get your parrot to eat all this food, you know. And they don't. In the wild, they take one bite and they toss it. And there's all these animals underneath the tree waiting for this to happen because they can't get up there to get these plants, right, and to get these uh, pods and whatever. So there's all these peccaries, you know, and, and all sorts of little animals, little of what do you call them, tepid squinklers and everything, waiting for these parrots to do that. Invariably, the monkeys, you know, find where the parrots are. The parrots are noisy, right? So the monkeys find where these animals are, and uh, these parrots are, and they start fighting them for the for the fruit. And this huge, you know, food fight ensues where they're throwing their food at each other, hardly eating any, and it's really comical. And it's a hell of a racket. But underneath, it's just like a rainstorm of food coming through the trees. You know? So you got all these animals, and again, I imagine people in the old days did too. Under there, just reaping this benefit of this terrible argument that's going on in the sky. And yet both sides, you know, what are they saying to each other? Not a whole lot. They're just arguing, you know. So I used to do workshops in my very amateurish days where I had people lined up and doing monkeys and parrots, arguing with each other with absolutely no content whatsoever, and absolutely the same amount got resolved as if they were actually speaking meaning. So, you know, so much for psychology. So they, they were just, in, everybody said, well, they were just venting. No, they were making food happen for the animals underneath them, you see. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the view of the other people is not that they're arguing, but that they're giving us our life, you see. It's not really an argument. Or even a conversation where it's not so much the meaning, but what's inside the heart that's been spoken one to the other. And I, I watched that. With my, I just want to put it in that book because she was so great. You know, when she got her foot cut off and it was rolling those damn TVs, <laughs> she thought it was a therapy to stick your foot up on a hissing TV to get irradiated. You know, <laughs> ah, I just died laughing. I couldn't believe it. That's the best use of TV I ever saw. You know, and no one could convince her otherwise. You know, that's all it was. You know? so, oh, she's yeah. fantastic. She died. Her husband's dead. They're all those that whole generation's gone. Thing, you see that people have that, that vitality and what's missing now in modern world in my, uh, my very small opinion is vitality it's that amazing, amazing vitality and sense of humor with life you know because so you just lose that with uh, all of this uh, bedragglement they put the people through with this electronics and who knows what else it's just really terrible so I invent a school where I you know try as hard as I can 
Not me jumping up and down, making everybody do things, but themselves doing them uh, to inspire that vitality to come alive. I I think anybody who's writing four books at once has to have a certain amount of vitality. (laughs) Well, that's just one kind of vitality. You have to have other kinds. I have a lot of horses, you know, and... I was a little late in here to get the phone because I was doctoring one of my little mares. And I would go with cattle, and I love the wild animals. I go out and pray. I've got shrines. I've got a lot of my spiritual things i got to do. You just have to feed all the time what is giving us life, man, you know. And writing books, well, you know, I was never going to write books. But I got approached by a publisher way back when, when I was working with crazy Robert Bly. And they didn't want me to write it. You know, like Secrets of Talking Jaguar, which is, you know, like what it is. But they wanted me to, they wanted someone else to write it while I just talk like I'm talking to you, and they would just write it down, and that would be it. And I said, no way. It's going to be my art. <laughs> I'm going to make it. I'm going to make art. And said, well, you don't know how to write. I said, well, I'm going to learn. I said, we don't want to pay for your learning curve. I said, okay, fine, but I don't care, you know. And so I started writing, and they get real mad, you know. So they sent me a ghostwriter, and the ghostwriter was a very nice, you know, very what you might call, you know, repressed little white lady who was trying to make a living. I said, how are we going to work this? This poor woman needs to eat, too. So I said, i tell you what. You write what you think it should be. We won't accept any of it, but you get paid anyway, and then I'll do mine. And so she got paid, and I did, too. And the guys were so mad at me. Oh, my God, they're still mad at me. But I I just wanted to write what I wanted to write, and they said, well, this... The, the publisher at that time, the first book I put out, it was 900,000 words. And so I had to divide it into three books. It's what, you know, Secrets of Talking Jaguar, A Long Life, Honey in the Heart, and, the, and the Beneficious Roses are all one book originally. I had to divide them down. They wouldn't accept them. So they said, these are um, decidedly anti-American. <laughs> they're not anti-American. They're just anti-hate. You know, anti-American. I, I love America. I live here. I love this place. I, I'm not empty of that at all. I just, I just, I want the world to be the people to, to have love, man, and to have that deliciousness of being a human being, you know. So, oh well, we can't do, you know. But here we are. I'm well, talking and, to you, and you read them, and I really love the fact you read some of my books, man. That's I, I, I appreciate them, and I want people to know that it's not just your words. That that the books are are rich and flush with your paintings and your illustrations. Yeah. Um, and that, that that's all part of the experience. God willing, God willing, yeah. Well, originally, the first book, they wanted to put some uh, Jaguar with iridescent eyeballs. <laughs> like a hologram. I said, I'm sorry, guys, I'm going to put one. I would love to have one of my paintings on it. No, no, you're not an artist, you're a writer. I said, well, okay, but, you know, please. And we had to argue about that for a long time. So we did it, of course, and it became so popular that every one of my contracts said I had to do my own covers after that. I said, Can you guys make up your mind? You know? But, uh, yeah, well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Well, but, I, uh, I hope that when they come out, you'd be willing to talk to us again. God give us all good life, and all the holies give us good life and good health and good way of being, and they come out with any kind of sanity in this insane age. Most certainly love. I mean, I'm sorry. I did all the talking. It's just, oh, well, you know what you got into. Uh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for it. Yeah. There's lots more to say and lots more to do, but how much more can people hear, you know? <laughs> uh, 
the, I, I think people are going to be going to the books. That's what I think is going to happen. And then we're right. going to have people coming to you in Mexico. Well, someday we'll get to shake your hand and drink tea together, yeah? I would love we'll that. See each other besides in the electronic nonsense, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we know how we are. We'll be good and we can give each other a hug and go for a horse ride or something. I would love that. Thank you, Martine. All blessings. Be well. Eat good. Have good, happy life. You too. Blessings All to right. you. Bye. 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 My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Martine Prechtel, author of The Disobedience of the Daughter of the Sun, here on the New Books Network.